Along with Christine Emba and Phil Rucker of the Washington Post and Molly Ball of Time magazine, Ann Snyder is one of Faith Angle's newest advisory board members, a role she hardly has time for, given the many other irons she has in the fire. Ann currently hosts the Whole Person Revolution podcast, and earlier this year, she co-edited a volume entitled Breaking Ground, with over 45 short essays published throughout the pandemic. She also authored The Fabric of Character in 2019, and has published articles in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and elsewhere. She's a trustee at Nyack College, as well as the Center for Public Justice, and a senior fellow at both the Trinity Forum and the Urban Reform Institute. She holds a master's in journalism from Georgetown and a BA from Wheaton College. But spurring today's conversation, since 2019, Anne has served as the editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine. In those three short years, the magazine's subscriber base has more than doubled to 7,000 subscribers. This year alone, its online presence has spiked to over 1 million visitors. During that time, Anne has substantially expanded the number of writers submitting essays to comment. And those authors include a number of Faith Angle podcast guests or speakers you may recognize, like Kate Bowler, Pete Wainer, Mike Gerson, Ashley Berner, David Brooks, Luke Bretherton, Tish Harrison-Warren, Shadi Hamid, and others. One of its current contributors, a delight to read and a friend to a lot of us over the years, is Greg Thompson, former senior pastor at a Charlottesville church just up the road from UVA. As he describes today, Greg's journey has taken some unexpected twists and turns. He holds a PhD in religious studies, and for years he ran a leadership organization called New City Commons, aimed at spurring deeper, more imaginative, faithful presence for leaders advancing culture-shaping institutions. Last year, he co-authored a provocative book on reparations and Christian repentance referenced in this conversation. Today, in addition to practicing the hospitality he preaches as a line chef at a beloved Charlottesville restaurant, Greg is co-director of Voices Underground, a Pennsylvania-based HBCU-affiliated initiative that promotes African-American cultural history through scholarly research, community experiences, and historical memorialization. Anne and Greg were here to talk about Greg's regular comment column, The Welcome Table, which weaves together a number of themes I know you're each passionate about. History, race, memory, hospitality, and a theology of belonging. Maybe Anne, you can start us off. very very kind not only do you have like the best podcast vocal timbre that I think I know of a anchor but it's just really fun to be there I kind of feel like I'm being welcomed back into the virtual home of my vocational beginnings at EPPC with some physical proximity to the Faith Angle Forum nearly 20 years ago and then just to get to share a bit of what I now get to steward at comment in the company of someone, namely Greg here, who I view as embodying just the heart of everything we're trying to fan the flame of in our readership and in the broader culture. It's just really fun. And there's kind of a journey even from when I was sitting near the institution you now, or the initiative you now are stewarding 20 years back to uh, where I am now and how that shaping comment. So we can talk about all that, but there's a little mischief in all this. So thank you for letting me come full circle. So I am, this is really fun for me to get to do with Greg. Greg has been such a gift to comment. We met actually, I think at a dinner, I had heard about Greg for some years 
when I was working on this book about character formation because he was swimming in some similar waters in a more applied way back in, I want to say, 2016, 17, 18. But we didn't meet until... I think right before COVID, Greg, like late 2019. And long story short, he offered something to us as a publication that we're loosely calling a column, a hub, a virtual table, and it's called the welcome table, which Greg will illuminate even why it's called that historically. But in his very first essay for us, Greg, you described the purpose of the series, which in the first essay was called Tables in a Time of War. You say... Quote, the welcome table, a new offering of comment, is born of two instincts, to reappraise the table and to return to it. Although it would have been impossible to imagine such a thing in the summer of 2015, the world that we share now, in parenthesis, I should say this was written and published in November of 2021, so exactly a year ago, the world that we share now just a few years later is in virtually every regard more deeply in crisis than it was. Across much of North America, many of the long-standing features of our tragic colonial inheritance endure. Racial and ethnic hostility, institutionalized injustices, material inequality, social mistrust. Each of these, of course, is now heightened by an intractable and highly politicized form of identitarian tribalism sustained through the willed cultivation of historical amnesia set against the backdrop of undeniable symptoms of ecological death. The fruit of all this is evident everywhere around us, anger, confusion, self-protection, a ubiquitous weariness of heart. We are every bit as much as Nat Fuller was setting our tables in a time of war. So with that powerful beginning, there's a lot in there. Greg, who was Nat Fuller and why did you choose to embark on this written series in collaboration with Comment? Well, first, thank you both for your hospitality to me today. And, you know, I want to just say that this welcome table column, such as it is and as it's becoming, has very much been a co-creation between Anna and myself. And we've talked a lot about it. And my goal in really coming up with this was to figure out how to bring my interest in these things to a vision that Anne already has. I mean, it's really... I can write for comment because she's embodying these things and creating these kind of spaces. And, you know, she's embodying the welcome tape when she, as evidence, you know, created a, a seat for me. So I'm really thankful for that. You know, when I was thinking about this first article, I wanted to bring together two things. One was hospitality in the in a vivid way, and the other was to talk about our cultural moment in a, a in a way. And the story of Nat Fuller was just a really obvious place to begin. I mean, Nat Fuller was an enslaved man in 19th century Charleston who was hired out on occasion to cook. And then he was he was trained in a lot of really important culinary techniques. He was like a gamekeeper and did all these did all these things as an enslaved person. But then in a very unusual way, his quote owner helped him finance a restaurant. And so he became, as an African-American man, really the most prominent chef in Charleston. And, you know, the major when major events for 
quote, white society were there, were being held, he was the, he was the person to cook. And so from just a culinary history perspective, it's a really fascinating fact that this, this man is, was bringing together French culinary techniques and local ingredients. Okay. This is in the 18, 1840s, 50s, 60s. And then from, I think, a cultural moment perspective, the fact that he, in the midst of this tragic moment when his city had literally been blown apart during the Civil War and was now occupied, he created a feast and invited people from all different sides to come and sit together. And it was a just sort of a legendary evening. I wanted to not only use him as an illustration, although I did want to do that, but I also, it's a personal mission of mine to try to promote African-American stories that people don't know, but I think should know as much as I can in my work. So that's how it all came to be. I love it, Greg. And it was fun. I remember that first draft working with you on it. I hardly had to touch it, by the way. So you're kind to call. I do feel deep missional collaboration with you, but for everyone listening, if you ever want really clean copy that is full of flair and verve, just pitch Greg Thompson. And I promise this won't be a mutual admiration society, the whole podcast, (laughs) but I have to say that. You know, one thing that has been really interesting for me in stewarding this the beginnings of the welcome table at Comet as an editor, as someone who, and we can talk about this later in the broader mission of Comet and what sort of the flavor and almost way of being we are trying to inhabit more even than a way of thought, although we are hoping to do both with integrity, is how to do hospitality humbly, but also generously and confidently in an era that views almost everything through the lens of power. And one thing I have so appreciated about learning from you, Greg, while editing The Welcome Table is how you are not putting hospitality forth as purely like a warm and fuzzy soft blanket that is assumed to be egalitarian around a table that is putting tons of expectations into the role of beauty. And like, this is a pretty gritty series that looks deeply at complicated notions of pain and dishonesty and public memory and righting wrongs and reparations. Um, And I, I have just so appreciated it because you've helped me in an era where I've actually gotten critiqued at times from whether you want to say it's folks on the far left or, and then those who don't even get understand it on the far right, for sort of being blind to the need for real truth-telling in my desire to create spaces that are patient, that honor every person's dignity, regardless of background and sin or lack thereof. And I, so this wrestling between the tensions of of robust truth-telling and civic health, which I feel like Martin Luther King Jr. himself kind of noted in much of his writing as he was critiquing white moderates and so on. I just, I have loved how you have held up hospitality as not the complete shebang, but absolutely vital. And yet you haven't done so in a way that obscures or erases all the hard things that we actually need to come in contact with, with one another, as we're all wrestling with the moral terrain of our history. So can you talk a bit about that? Like maybe a bit of your own journey there, if you wouldn't mind, and how you're trying to weave this together through narrative. And it's fun because there's culinary details you include. I mean, you're, this is a very sensuous series in many ways, which I think also helps. But how do you think about hospitality and power, welcome and belonging and truth telling. These are like things that often don't mix. 
Can the gift logic be a battle cry is basically my question. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great question. You know, I think part of this comes from a way of, of understanding American history, which has in many ways, and in contrast to our ideals, been one of inhospitality and clear abuse of power. And I think that we have to be able to acknowledge that. And and so one of the reasons I'm beginning a, a column on hospitality with these painful stories is because these are the things that have historically not been welcome at our tables. And so it's more like in the, in the version of the parable, I've gone out to the highways and byways and gotten the things that we want to forget and said, no, you come and be seated at this table because we have to tell this. We have to talk about the fact of what Matt Fuller was up against. We have to talk about memorialization. We have to talk about ecological death. We, ha- we have to talk about cultural prejudice. I mean, one of the articles that I'm working on for next year is called Hospitality in the Age of Predators, where really reflecting on like what does it mean to answer the church's call to hospitality in light of our constant sexual abuse crisis. Now, not every article is, it's not like I'm going through a catalog of horrors and then like wrapping a, wrapping a ribeye around it. It's more just saying like, if we're going to be hospitable, we have to understand that it's not, there's a difference between that and what we grew up in the South calling entertaining. And it is welcoming the truth about ourselves and other people into this. And anybody who actually works professionally in a kitchen knows that hospitality is work. It's work of every kind. It's only the front of house, people that sit in the front of house that you realize you don't know the effort behind it. But when you work 16 hours behind the line, it's a different thing. And so I'm trying to just bring all of that and to create really a disposition of mind or heart to cultivate a certain kind of imagination that says, what if the goal of my life was not cultural conquest? It wasn't even broadly conceived as like cultural transformation, (laughs) but what if it is that I am in this moment and my work is to build a life of love with others? And that's what conviviality really is, is life with. And so how do we do that? And I think that language, that discursive world has sort of fallen out of any, any sort of theological formation or cultural formation that I am familiar with. And I'm familiar with like a lot of them. And I don't know of any that really put it at the center like like you do and like I am trying to do in this in this work. You know, Greg, you I've known you for a little while and you used to have this special bourbon that you would only serve when there was a guest at your home. It was way up on the top <laughs> shelf, I remember. And and, and I don't know. Was it Uncle Nearest? I can't remember what it was. No, what? this was pre Uncle Nearest days. This, no. Uncle Nearest is actually our house whiskey at the Star and Lantern restaurant that we're opening up in, in PA, but it was Booker's bourbon. That was before they doubled their price. So <laughs> now I just make a cocktail that I'd love to make for you someday. Well, I sense you love it, that you actually do. And, you know, what, there was some candidate who was running for office, I remember some time ago, and he said, I know what your favorite word is. And this student group I was helping to work with, they said, what do you, I don't know, liberty? What, is, what does he mean? What's he? And he said, I know what you, your favorite word is Anne. Your favorite word is Greg. And his point was, we like to hear our name. <laughs> And if there's not a, you know, a candidate vision that has your name included in the platform, you're not going to be excited about it. We like to hear the personal gift of, of our name. And I, I sense that's a, an overflow for you. But you're attaching, you know, colonial conquest to convivial ev- imagination, moral imagination, a lot to this. I guess, is there something about hospitality that is personal for you? Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and just to say, I attach 
convivial imagination to this colonial conquest because conviviality is its opposite and is at its undoing. <laughs> if the first was premised upon, I'm going to come and take things that belong to you, whether I'm welcome or not, conviviality is the opposite. I'm going to come and bring things that belong to me and make them ours. I think it's personal to me. Every chef who writes a book on their chefness begins with like some moment growing up, you know, and I grew up in this eccentric food family or whatever. I just grew up, I grew up in the South, in the American South, and food is at the center of all social life. So, I mean, I obviously have a disposition. My dad was a cook at times. He, he worked construction, but he loved to cook at home. And then he would cook, go out West and cook for rodeos during rodeo season. And so, you know, that was a fun thing that, that he did. But I think a lot of this came from me in my theological training for my first career, which was as a pastor of a church and seeing how central the table and the welcoming heart of God was to the faith as I came to understand it. You know, even Calvin used to call his language for the sacrament was the kiss of Christ. And having this sense of that the table is really the central religious place in the Christian faith, even more than the heart, <laughs> you know, having somebody into your heart. It's, it's having God into your heart. It's like meeting with God at, at, at this table and that and so there's a sense in which people are like, what happened to you? You're like, you're doing all these weird things now. But the through line is I've been calling people to the table for years. I did it every Sunday and now I'm doing it in a, in a different way. So it's deeply personal. And I'll say this. I think that when you know you do the kind of academic work that I do, when people meet me, especially people who disagree with me, Everybody, there's this sense like what we're going to do is we're going to talk ideas or we're going to engage the hard, the hard things. And my instinct is always to bring somebody in the kitchen and say, hey, can you do this for me? Can we do this together or can I make you all a meal? I mean, I had this experience just a couple of weeks ago when I was meeting with with someone who I knew was I'd heard from other people hated the reparations book and thought, you know, that I was like contributing to the destruction of America. And when we met, I just said, why don't. Why don't you come over for lunch? And I was cooking lunch. And we ended up having a great time because it's a way that we can attend to bodies. It's a way that we can attend to people's senses. It's a way that we can honor them. And it just changes the discourse. And it should. I love that so much. I was in, you know, when you're in these kinds of, I was laughing actually, Josh, when you were reading both my bio and Greg's bio, and I was feeling so envious of Greg's bio and kind of embarrassed of mine that I'm like tapped into kind of a certain flavor of institutions. And he's just like led his life with such sort of courage and willing to go rogue. One day I will do that, but I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the courage to build. I should have told a story about David and Ann hosting, you know, concerts <laughs> in their home with people from diverse backgrounds and cooking and well, uh, hospitality dinners. I should I left that part out. Well, you're sweet. Yeah, I've experienced that that very hospitality. She has hosted me at her home. Well, well, Greg, that was like a yeah. We're gonna do it right next time with the sharp knife you gave me to chop some garlic real good, mince it. But I I bring up sort of the role that I'm in to say I get invited these days as like you know we're obviously living through pretty tumultuous times in this Western part of the world. And so we got to, you naturally get invited if you're in this, and Josh, I'm sure you too, these positions of institutional leadership, ambassadorship that feel like they have some elite tentacles of it, relationship and access. You get invited to these seminars and convenings all the time that are essentially like, how do we solve all the problems? <laughs> and, and that can sometimes be in the church. It can be in the broader culture. It can be in a certain domain of whether it's economics or politics or whatever. And I'm learning to get more discerning, frankly, of when I say yes. But I was recently at one that was a, was sort of group of sort of Christian institutional stewards. 
And there was someone there who comes from a brain science psychological background. And he said after about 24 hours of hemming and hawing about the weakening of liberalism and what's happening to our extremist, the movements that seem to be gaining such steam on the extremes in ways that are spilling out into political violence and, you know, important things. These are things we have to somehow face. But this guy who comes from more of a sort of psychology background finally said, you know, I feel like all that we're talking about and trying to understand is almost the pretext for we need to be, like he, he was started quoting Jesus, like the dwelling with, the withness, the presence, the presence with one another is the end in and of itself. And he said it much more beautifully than I can, but there was something in his emphasis of withness, person to person, that sort of captured in a word, in a preposition, the challenge of trying to embody that and communicate it through words, but also create programmatic strategies through a vehicle like a magazine, which is inherently ideas-based and word-based, sometimes image-based in our case, to create that relationality that is actually part of how we change, get converted, hopefully grow as human beings and some might say as disciples. So I, I just want to bring that up as something you said, Greg, that, that I think that notion of what lies between us is something that I kind of wake up to every day. And it's harder to embody in the email inbox than it, and sometimes even on the page than it is around tables. But there's something there that I think we have to press into, especially if we're claiming an inheritance that in our case is rooted in these like 2000 years of Christian social thought and being and action. <laughs> Yeah, and I've been, you know, just to interject for a moment, I was in those rooms once upon a time and had been in a lot of those spaces and learned a lot in the, in those spaces. But I think one of the things that accounts for the direction of my vocation is that I, I realized it felt like the same conversation every time. It's a narrative of decline. It's a convening of elites. It's a cultivation of strategy, often lived in really profound ignorance about the lived experiences and hopes and, and struggles of our neighbors. And that, for me, it ended up starting to feel a little abstract, you know. And I was also like, even the most winsomely put, it comes down to wanting to change the circumstances in which other people live, which I obviously am committed to that. But it, there's something that this disposition of, of living with rather than against it was just a missing ingredient consistent i mean consistently and always took on the tone of an embattled minority who were entrusted with this sacred responsibility to bring transformation and yet there was so little of i, I felt like low so little enfleshment of our actual neighbors in that and that i felt like i had to go out in search of that hmm. can i ask maybe as a follow up and the with that your most recent essay has this line about brokenness from Annie Dillard. You know, you talk about how many of us live lives that actually blind us to the world. Accidentally, it's unintentional, it's benign, but it's also malignant. And you say something about maybe you could tell our share with our listeners something about how you used to think that brokenness was surmountable, and now maybe you don't as much, that we're going to have to live with some of it. But there's something about leaning into the width and the personal nature of hospitality that, that helps us overcome it. But, but is that right, that there's, that there's a limit to how much we can do and used to have theological categories for the creation mandate and the like? How is it that we push back against that soft Annie Dillard line about abiding brokenness and arrest the accidental prolonging of these blinding habits? Well, yeah, in the particular context, what I was saying is 
I used to think that by preaching the creation mandate and talking about the goodness of creation was enough to create an integral ecological sensibility in the church. But I have since seen that that is not enough. And I think I said these have always just it's often seemed to me just to shelter ignorance about the ecological state of the world. And so I felt like what we needed instead was attention to really pay attention to what was happening in our own ecological spaces. But to your point about Annie Dillard and abiding brokenness, there's a tension for me because on the one hand, like I wrote a book called Reparations, okay? <laughs> like I believe that the world should be, can be repaired or we can make real initiatives towards repair, which is a different thing than transform, by the way. I feel like it can be repaired that reparative work can be done. But on the other hand, I feel like a lot of the language that I heard and certainly the disposition I heard was either was really an unwillingness to just sort of abide the complexities that we have and to be present in love in the midst of those things. We've got to somehow go upstream and get rid of all the root causes. And I understand as well as anybody, the kind of elite interpenetrating networks for social change. I get it. But I also feel like at some point I've I had to look up and go, how many times, how many years am I going to go to meetings that are having the same conversation? What if we were cultivating a different disposition, which just meant I have to be present with my neighbors in these things, push against them as much as I can, but learn to not presume that I can control all of this, but be present and make a meal in the midst of it. That's not a quietism. It's not an Anabaptist, which is often used as a slur in our circles. It's not, it's not that kind of withdrawal. It is just simply a recognition that I stopped believing the brochures <laughs> and thought, you know what? I think there's a different way to be a person than this. And that's what I've been groping towards. Amen, amen, amen. <laughs> so many amens. So Greg, as I said, you know, it's a joy to read your writing and there's an element to it that it's, I find your structure, your essays are pretty long and for us at least, and I find they are very intentionally structured, but the writing and prose itself kind of feels like it just pours out of you. I don't know if that's how it feels, but that's how it feels to read it. And I'm curious about your process. Like, does it bring to mind the homily writing process back when you were regularly preaching in a congregation or totally different? Well, I think it's the same in two respects. One is that I begin with a structure. I try to take all the thoughts I have or feelings I have about some topic out of a drawer and then sort them and say, where would this go in a conversation? Where would this go in a structured argument? I tend to believe that I want writing to have, and certainly I wanted this with preaching, I want the next line to feel like the inevitable line, like the one that had to be there rather than, and I'm really trying to be deliberate about not like repeating myself or things like that, but I handwrite everything. I handwrote the reparations book. And I have like what section this is going to go in written at the top of the page. And they're all mixed up together. And I just leave and say, I gotta, I've got to work on this. And I walk. And then I sit down when I, I record stuff in the phone or I sit down and just write it out. That's what I've done with every one of these essays. That's what I, I'm, do, I'm doing on this essay that I have for you right now. So that's the process. But it's different than preaching in that I feel like I have a little more room to move. And this feels more authentically like what I want to say, which is not to say that preaching was inauthentic. It's just to say you're very accountable to the calling to serve a particular audience as a preacher. And as a writer, I feel like I have a little more freedom just to be what I actually am. Because the whole idea in preaching is that the 
person preaching is supposed to disappear. <laughs> but as a writer, you step forth and begin to say, this is what I think both for good or for ill. I love that. I think you probably talked to most writers, at least in the ever since the typewriter was invented. And I have certainly experienced this in myself, but I also experience it working with writers that there is generally a different prose style that emerges when you draft everything by hand versus typewritten. Funny enough, I also draft by hand my published writing, but anytime I have to give a talk, I type it up. And I think it's the relation, the sort of anticipated relationality of a talk that kind of helps my fingertips on the keys. I, it's very weird. It's, there's stuff going on in the brain here. <laughs> you know, on that front of just, I think part of what comes out or can come out more comfortably, especially, I mean, I'm someone who's often actually written my prayers out, which I think so by hand. So when it comes to ink on a page, I think there's a natural personalism that is a little bit more front forward than if I'm typing, I feel a little bit more dry, almost like I'm writing a science report or something, at least initially. And I've noticed what, what another thing I've loved about this, and Josh, I'm going a tiny bit rogue here on your questions, but one thing I have been so grateful for and, and admiring in your essays for us on the welcome table is you've included specifically and repeatedly your father and your relationship with your father and sort of the haunting memory, but the gratitude and the sort of particularities and quirks he had and your own as a result of that. And and I found that, especially as we, so many of the themes are about race and American history, I have found that to be both vulnerable and a lot more honest than most people who are in sort of the intellectual civil rights history writing space are. They don't include, especially if they're white or white guys, they're not including their own inheritance, particularly in the story. And there's something about seeking home and homecoming that when I think about the ways in which inchoate senses of loss in our society today are being weaponized in politics, loss towards grievance, and there are real losses to be put at an altar and sort of sacrificed towards a sacred horizon that I think can be very transformative. But there's also a lot of, I think, sort of vague sense of people's cultural loss. I'll say, especially, I think, broadly sort of white folks in the U.S. are wrestling with or are not wrestling with and they need to be, that is somehow an ingredient in a lot of the dysfunction we're currently seeing, but it may be a necessary chapter of dysfunction. So I've just, this is kind of a <laughs> meandering way of asking, did you expect to talk about your family lineage in this series when you began it? Is anything that I'm observing hinting at something that's actually going on? <laughs> yeah, well, yes. I mean, even when I was a preacher, I was always in dialogue with my father. Like he's right there on the on the shelf behind me. There are two pictures um, right there. So there, there's part of it is I'm always trying to make sense of who I am now in light of what I've come from. And so there's this constant dialogue. But another thing is, I mean, it's an attempt to break from a certain kind of expected discourse around cultural transformation and cultural healing and cultural decline, because a lot of these things are sort of like analytic in the way that we talk about it. It's, it's mostly dispassionate and it's devoid of vulnerability. And that's, that's one of the things that I see that we need to overcome because I think one of the most consistent features of my stuff is its self-deprecating nature. I mean, I'm always like trying to say, okay, here's a stupid thing I did this time. And here's how, how my dad, what my dad used to make fun of me about that time. And part of that's just how I am as a person. But remember, this whole thing is about hospitality. It's not about the ideas. And hospitality involves persons. And I have to model 
what a good dinner conversation would be like, you know, because people don't know when we get it's like we walk into these these rooms at hotels where we're going to talk about the problem of illiberalism or something. And we like cease to be people and it feels so weird. And it's like everybody in the room is suddenly emotionally unhealthy. <laughs> you know, like They can't be fully present. And so I'm just like, why don't we all do stupid stuff and we all have wounds. We all have things to say. So why don't we like merge that? That's part of the reason, to be honest with you, I think some of this cultural transformation stuff is so profoundly ineffectual because we don't know how to be ourselves or invite other people into that space. And we have to do it by modeling vulnerability, not resentment. I mean, this feels basic, but but I think we have to we have to model that. And so again, the essay is to cultivate a disposition or an imagination for the kind of people that we could be with our neighbors. And I just personally believe that the endless drone of declinist narrative cultural commentary, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to have dinner with any of us. Okay. <laughs> and do you know why? Because of that. And so I just feel like if we could do something different and be like, hey, well, let's talk about this thing at Nat Fuller. Let's talk about memorials. But I also need to tell you about how stupid I was. That feels to me like a much different way to, of being with our neighbors. I love it. And it just cuts through the noise. Have you found that to be the case, that sort of pattern of either self-deprecation or vulnerability in rooms where you are today? I found that I'm not in those rooms a lot, but I have found that the rooms that I'm in, people feel like disarmed, you know? I mean, because, okay, look, I'm a big, slightly scary looking white guy who wrote a book on reparations. And when I go into a room and I'm fast with words and clearly organizing my thought, that's like stressful for people. Okay. And so I think part of the thing is just to be different, just to say, let's not, we don't have to foreground that stuff. Let's just do something else. And I found that that opens people up after spending a lot of years in this, in the kind of cultural transformation space, which I still value. And I don't anyway want to discredit that. I just have found that people are much more open to me and I'm much more collaborative with people than I was before when I was centering the differences between us rather than this common good that we share and we're trying to, you know, nourish each other with. That has been different, but it's a different crowd. I mean, most of my life is spent right now with not elites, non-elites. And that's, that's a different thing. And I'll tell you this really poignant moment that I had. <clears throat> so in the kitchen where we work, if you walk out into the dining room, you can look and there's a wall. And on one side of the wall, you can see into the kitchen. And on the other side of the wall is a private dining room. And I was standing there right in the right in the middle. And I could see all these like beautifully dressed people. It was like a law school kind of thing where people from Harvard and UVA and all these people were there. And then I could see my colleagues in the kitchen, most of whom have no college education, several of whom have been in prison. And I just had this moment where I was like, I used to be on that side of the wall at that table. And now I'm on this side of the wall at this table. And I thought, and I'm glad I am. I'm glad that I am because the kind of humility and the kind of, again, like lack of masking humility, too. Yeah. 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 I mean, those people, it's funny. Nobody, I don't think really more than one or two people at the restaurant know my actual name. Everybody calls me the blade for some <laughs> funny reason. So like literally, literally I'm in our, I'm in our Slack chat as the blade. That is just a different, much more freeing way. And I found myself never looking over anybody's shoulder, trying to talk to somebody else more important. And so that it's almost an excuses for me to purge a lot of the elitist striving and say, I mean, I still know all the stuff I knew, you know, more, but I'm trying to see what does it feel like to do this in a different way? 
with different people. And I don't, I don't know yet, but that's what I'm trying to cultivate. I have so much respect for this. I could use the word envy again, but I think respect is more, and I think part of you remind me, Greg, with sometimes when I actually don't go to many of these like classic Washington, D.C., where I live, sorts of parties that are stereotyped. I just don't go to many of those. I'm, I, they're the last thing I ever want to go to. But when it feels like I have to, or, you know, you're trying to respond to an invitation and you, you know, you're honoring people who you care about, who have these positions of so called kind of authority and influence, I'm always like lingering and lingering and lingering with the, usually guys, sometimes a few women valeting the cars and there, I'm just like, those, those just, and I don't mean that to pump, it's like, it's like literally where I feel the most human and comfortable. And I think I'm often trying to figure out, okay, for whatever reason, I've been given this like beautiful gift of a magazine that I've always thought of as the definition of, a, of at least a small magazine is an aspirational community. I've always thought of them that way. Historically, when I look at the ways in which magazines wove people together, typically between the academy and the street, like how can we somehow cultivate spaces and put some of our own skill sets as you do as a person, like your own training, your you know sociological, religious studies, historical, biographic background, your verbal agility and fluency, which is way above average at the service of love and at the service of sort of, and I don't mean that to sound like Oprah, but not that there's anything wrong with Oprah, but. No, that's what, that's what we believe. Yeah, we believe that. Yeah, and and I, I think how to, how to make institutions in service of that, that's not like an empty question for me. That's a daily set of experiments, honestly. <laughs> so I'm glad to be a fellow traveler here because I just, it's rare to find someone who articulates that like deep, deep, really joy, like the reason to be alive. <laughs> Yeah, it's way more fun. You know, my spiritual director at some point said to me, you have more in common with like Spike Lee or or some of these creators than you do with the mentors that you've had, just in terms of who you are as a person. And she's like, I don't ever want you leading this as a senior pastor of a church again, because that's not who you are. And who, the best part of who you are is always under constraint. It's been since I left those worlds, in a sense, it's been a process of trying to and this is why I think this is actually why my father is so present in my mind, because he always looked at those worlds that I was in a slightly askance. Like, is this really is this really you? Is this really what you is this really what you're trying to do? And I think that he is would be prouder of me, this person, than the one that was getting public, you know, sort of affirmation. Because this this is the boy he knew growing up, you know, and I think that 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 feels better. Well, I was intrigued. Your last essay about inhabiting the earth, maybe that was second to last, was the most recent essay about inhabiting the earth, you know, talks about farming itself and the soil. And there's this sort of seeing Greg Thompson out there fertilizing the seed and making it all come to life and making it grow. You know, it is a striking image. And I was reminded, well, I think the line is that 90% of the country used to farm. And only 2% does today because, of course, technology has changed so much to make this possible. It's amazing. But you got some capacity for authentic welcome and belonging to be cultivated on both sides of that door, it seems like, you know. And I wonder what the 70-year-old version of Greg Thompson will say to the 50-year-old to version of Greg Thompson. I mean, you've moved in and out, it seems to me, of places of elite power and places of cultivation amongst those who are not included in that room initially and are yet doing remarkably awesome things. And memories becoming known, you know, but do you think it's possible to go back and forth freely? That's an exit question for me. 
Well, it depends on what you mean by freely. Certainly not without cost. But, you know, there, I see people who do this. I mean, obviously, Wendell Berry is like a really unusual person in his capacities. And I'm not a farmer. I mean, I have worked on a farm. I'm just a big guy who it's helpful to farmers for me to be on their farm. <laughs> 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 well, that's more what it is. I usually don't have the, the skill, but I, I can do the, the brawn. Yeah, yeah, that's the word. So I think, I think that being able to move in and out of that has been a fundamental part of who I am. And there's an interesting history of that in the South. You know, these Southern liberals who were expats who, you know, had to leave their community or they would be in their community and they would be reading philosophy and then they would be working on the farm or they would be delivering sheep. Like, I, I know people like this. Like, for example, the man that I lived with on Wonton Farm, the man who owned the farm, he would take me out deer hunting in the morning. Okay, He's a physician. He would take me out deer hunting in the morning and he would would get out of the truck and he would hand me, he would put like Kierkegaard, Jonathan Edwards, four other people on the back of the truck and say, why don't you take one of these and I'll take one and we'll go to breakfast after this and after the hunt and we'll talk about it. That's a very interesting, I love those kind of people. You know, because I mean, the guy like would literally has blood on his on his Filson jacket. <laughs> and yet here he is, man, you know, reading Kierkegaard and driving this old truck and thinking structurally about how do we make healthcare in a way that forms character and physicians. That that intersection I've always found to be really beautiful, but I've always had to be on one side of the line or another. And I think what I'm really struggling toward right now is can I actually inhabit both of those with integrity and without agenda, but just being a person, that has been the struggle. So I think you can, but it takes a lot of spiritual work and it takes the cultivation of new skills which is not easy at, at almost 50-year-old. <laughs> a lot of this is, is focused on the welcome table and the essays, and I'm grateful that you are giving attention to that. But as I said at the beginning, this really also is an expression of your vision and your hope. And you have created a space for me to do this, and you're embodying this. And so I'd love for the listeners to be able to hear, you know, when you imagine comment as a, as a community of hospitality, that both provides people with the ideas for this way of being and also in time, the actual programmatic opportunities. Like I'd love to hear just what the hope is and what the vision is that you're trying to bring into being. Cause I think it's very beautiful. Oh, thanks Greg. That's kind. And thanks for asking, you know, my dream for comment and I don't need any of this to be branded per se under our name. I'm, I'm not honestly sure our name is that great. <laughs> I inherited it. So I'm not sure. It might, we don't even offer comments online, so it doesn't make sense that we're called comment, but that is what it is. And we can make it look good in font. So it hopefully is uh, updated into 2022 aesthetics. But my dream really is to just be in the season of stewardship of, of an intellectual vehicle, of a kind of a, as you've been talking about, Greg, a way of seeing, I very much think of my role both as a host, but also as kind of a conductor of a choir. And sometimes that choir is pretty discordant. We, we believe in pluralism and we're not overly afraid of it, but we also like to bring like, we try and I fail at this a lot, but I'm trying to bring sort of 
unknown voices and perspectives to interrogate a given theme. So it kind of, when you walk away, especially from a print issue, which is meant to be a bit of a mosaic around a given question that sort of I intuit as a kind of zeitgeisty thing simmering beneath the surface of the news cycle. When you close that issue of 10 to 12 pieces, including sort of the artistic rendering and so on with plenty of white space to jot down your own reactions and dialogue with it, that you feel like you've been treated to a feast and it's felt like a bit of a sacred community you've been welcomed into. So the short of my dream is like almost like how can we create quasi Shabbats all over the land, <laughs> Shabbat dinners? And I think my husband has a saying coming from a Jewish background that when he came into Christianity a number of years ago, every church service he would go to felt more spiritual than a Saturday synagogue service, but it could never compare to a Friday night Shabbat dinner in terms of the spirit, warmth, conviviality, probing, disagreement, debate, laughter, just a real sense of peoplehood being sustained. So there's something in that, I think, in what I'm trying to cultivate little by little with a lean team. I had always, as I sort of said earlier, when I interviewed for this job and I I had been, I'd worked for a few small magazines and I had more just kind of studied them historically. I just loved the magazine as a vehicle of that was like a hinge point, like a stopover, a wayfaring station that could bridge a variety of different worlds. And I kind of knew or I sensed that in this particular time where you had all these different sort of philosophical ideological streams fragmenting into what felt like mass incoherence, but also worrisome, I don't know, just human excesses being granted canopy and being granted strongmen and spokespersons. I just was like, oh, we're so bombarded with content. I need to somehow inject a flavor of relationship into this and personalism into this fairly high middle-brow cultural publication. And so, yeah, the welcome table is a huge piece of that. We're producing some other things on another podcast and some other communities off the page. We have something called Comment Suppers, which we need to beef up, which is just trying to create a little toolkit for people to talk about pre-political goods and questions both from the standpoint of their own situatedness in it all. So it's not like way out there, distanced, where I have no agency in the problem or I have no responsibility, but where they can, with friends and strangers, kind of pursue truth together. And and you don't have to always come from the same priors. So yeah, I mean, that's in a bit of a nutshell, my flavor that I'm trying to inject it with is lots of Friday night dinners with candlelight. (laughs) And we'll see how you do that from the printer to the dining room, but that's the ultimate dream. Both, I think, just actually in its sensibility, even if you read it as an individual, but ideally in the kinds of organizational cultures that our readers are cultivating if they're in positions of leadership, in the kinds of reconciliation we yearn to see in families is hopefully a piece might help someone interact with a politically estranged aunt or just in how people see the disabled and the person who has no power in a given zip code, that there's something here that creates new friendships and surprise conversions to a better way to live. So thanks for being a part of it. Well, that's a great vision. And I'm sorry we can't manage to pass along Greg's Choice Whiskey with this podcast episode. But at the very least, it sounds like if you come over to my house, comment (laughs) comment next next year, you'll get some fresh holla in the mail. All right. (laughs) Thanks, guys, very much. Thank Thank you.
Faith Angle connects leading journalists with religion scholars and clerics, including former pastors turned culinary artists and writers. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.